several months ago, uh, I did a sermon um, for a group of people in another church. I, uh, the story of how I have become part of what is called the Pastors on Patrol, the Shreveport Police Pastors Program, it's kind of strange, and anyone who knows me at all would look at me and my life and go, really? You know, it's just, it's just very strange that I'm a part of that, of that program. Um, but in it, there are pastors from a number of faiths that ride out with the police sometimes and are, are, try to be available for people if they need uh, ministers. And that particular program was an anniversary of, of the police pastors organization coming together. I was asked to deliver the message and most of the people that were there um, were fundamentalist ministers. The way actually that I became part of this program is uh, a man who was serving in Shreveport as a rabbi asked me for over a year and a half to please, please, please come be a part of this program. They needed women they, because there were none that were a part of the program and they needed people to represent views that were not necessarily fundamentalist mainstream Christian. Well, not long after I got involved, well, not too long ago actually, the rabbi moved to Florida and so this left me with uh, a number of ministers that are from very traditional backgrounds, and it was for them that I was supposed to deliver this service. Um, I didn't know whether I had been asked to do it as an initiation trick <laughs> or because they really wanted to hear what I had to say. Because the year before at the anniversary party, I had been asked to introduce a man that had been serving the church at which this celebration happened for 19 years. I was introducing him to his own congregation of 19 years, and I knew that was an initiation trick. <laughs> well, uh, so I found myself in an interesting position. Because, you know, I'm part of a tradition that most likely is unfamiliar to them and most likely had views that were uh, different than a lot of their own. And in spite of that, with a good representation of our choir there and some of our other members, I was asked by those people from our church to do the sermon here. Now, I write things out for a sermon, but most of the time I get off script just a few paragraphs in. Um, since I put this sermon together quite some time ago, I'm probably going to be leaning largely on my notes, and it's not going to be exactly the sermon that I delivered there. I was very mindful of my audience, um, but nevertheless, that's what I'm here to talk about today. Um, I explained that our church is made up of individuals who have a variety of understandings of God. And God, who we know by many different ways and speak of with a lot of different names or no names at all. 
Many of our members don't identify themselves as Christian. And we think that's just fine. Like I said a little bit ago, I'm going to be making a lot of references to the New Testament of the Christian scripture because those were the references I made for that sermon. And I said even Jesus in John 10, 16 said, other sheep have I that are not of this fold. You see, we've noticed that God comes to us and speaks to us in a lot of different ways. And opportunities and insights that show up in the kindness of strangers, in the face of grief or loss, through hard lessons, and moments of mercy. I talked about how at um, General Assembly, no, it wasn't General Assembly, it was the Institute for Excellence in Ministry where thousands of Unitarian Universalist ministers gathered in Florida. A man came to speak to us who's the pastor emeritus of Riverside Church in New York. His name is Dr. James Forbes. And James Forbes talked about the story of Elijah going into, um, uh, it's from uh, the book of King, First Kings, um, going up on the mountain because God said he's going to talk to him there. And first he waits, Elijah waits to hear, uh, well, he waits to hear God's voice. And there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. There's uh, a great wind and God's not in the great wind and there's fire and God's not in the fire and ultimately Elijah hears God's voice in the still small voice now doc, Dr. Forbes said that he's been from a lot of different traditions and in those traditions there's been a lot of earthquaking that was God speaking and there's been a lot of fire and a lot of wind and God's voice in all of those places. But he said what Unitarian Universalists were adept at was that still small voice. And he gave us credit for that. Now, he was not from our tradition. And so um, I, that really spoke to me. Anyway, these, these ministers to whom I was speaking speak with a lot of fire and a lot of passion and I was trying to let them know I'm not going to do that. Not today. So I talked about how in the Bible um, God shows up in a lot of different ways as a burning bush to Moses and as pillars that lead the Israelites, pillars of fire and cloud and trumpets and in smoke um, great winds and earthquakes and also in the still small voice. And in the Hebrew tradition of Kabbalah, there are 72 names for God. Uh, what are there? I can't remember how many there are in the Muslim tradition. 99? Is that right? 99 names for God. Um, and it, that in the strictest of Jewish tradition, the real name of God is not to be spoken at all. 
So because we find the sacred in so many surprising ways, our tradition draws from a number of sources. Claudia offered a number of those in her offering this morning. But I identified direct experience of the transcending mystery and wonder, words and deeds of prophetic men and women um, from many times and cultures, wisdom of the world's traditions, Jewish and Christian teachings, humanist teachings, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions. And we're charged with the responsibility of listening to all of them, all of those stirrings deep within us. For truth, as we are given to know the truth. We're seekers on many paths, and as Matthew 7, 7 assures us, if we seek, we will find. That's a paradox with that, the answer is to question thing. There's one teaching I pointed out that we use a lot to teach, and I talked of the story of the five blind men and the elephant, how each touches the elephant in a different place and walks away saying an elephant is like this, whether it's the leg and understanding the elephant to be like a tree or the side and understanding the elephant to be like a wall or the trunk and understanding an elephant to be like a snake or the tail, an elephant is like a rope or the ear, an elephant is like a palm leaf. This is the truncated version of this teaching story. But that we accept that whatever God is or whatever that to which we refer to with the word God, it's larger than our ability to comprehend or that can be conscribed in any one particular set of understandings. All of us are human. All of us are limited. None of us can possibly, at least at this point, fathom all that that represents. Language is too limiting and experience is too unique. Truth, too vast. But all of that having been said, I told them I was not there with the intention of winning them over to my tradition. Though, of course, I told them they were welcome to come if they'd like. We recognize the voices of truth we need. We recognize the voices of truth we need to hear. And I spoke of how sheep, and I'm not calling you that, please. No, I'm not calling you that. Uh, Cats, maybe. um, Sheep know the voice of their own shepherd. Again, from John 10, we can learn that sheep know the voice of their own shepherd, and there are some particularly fine shepherds out there, and I think they serve a lot of purpose, personally. So I asked what message I could find that might be of value to all of us 
and that we might all have something in common regarding. And what I've found myself led to speak about as our common ground was something significant that we share rather than getting caught up in the particulars of our differences. Something that's mentioned more than 480 times in the Bible because I had sat up the night before counting them in my concordance. It was a concordance of the King James Version, so I don't know what that number would be in later translations. But it was something that Jesus reportedly talked about more than twice as much as he talked about faith. I shared that every Sunday morning we stand up at All Souls and begin with the recitation of a pledge we make to one another. And the first line of that pledge, and I pointed to the choir, I said, our unison affirmation begins... Thank you. I'm home and you don't know that? (laughs) They did a great job of representing you. They didn't let me down. (laughs) Let's do that again. Thank you very much. You made me scared there for a minute. Uh, The choir and several other members, like I said, started right on cue. No hesitation, and they did it with gusto. They were pretty wonderful. The body gives teachings and one guiding principle that binds our congregation together and contains what Jesus referred to as the most essential point of his followers was love. In these troubled and difficult times with a world and our nation and our homes divided, As much as in any other time in history, if not more, we need our focus on love. Now this is today marks the end of our 30 days of love and Unitarian Universalism. I don't know if any of you were getting the emails or signed up for those things that asked something of us every day for the last 30 days in service to love. But that's why I thought I would bring this today, a couple of days after Valentine's, into 30 days of love. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 22, in Mark 12, in Luke 10, that the two greatest commandments, and this was following, in in Luke it was right after the story of the Good Samaritan. The two greatest commandments were to love God with all your heart and mind and spirit and soul. And and, and, uh, Mark adds strength when he says it. And that's the greatest commandment. But the second is like unto it, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, not as yourself, but because your neighbor is yourself. That's, I don't know that I went there with them. But the golden rule is something that we hear people refer to. We have posters that 
somewhat mistakenly, and I don't think I pointed this out either, claim that a version of the golden rule exists in dozens of other traditions. And on the poster, uh, it shows Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, humanism, Wicca, Wicca, Taoism, Confucianism, Baha'i, Native American spirituality. Um, I'm not sure what else, but those are included. Now, the truth of the matter is what those sayings are that they've pulled out to put on those posters say very different things. And if you read them, you'll see that they're not all the golden rule and are not necessarily the highlighted central part of those traditions. But there is some sense of justice and how that plays out in our interpersonal relationships that are a part of every tradition. First John says, First John 4, 12, 16b, 18, 21, <laughs> uh, says, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us. God is love. God is, abides, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now, I understand um, I'm using that G word a lot today. And I hope those for whom it's not your tradition will put on your universal translators and stay with me. There is no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casts out fear. And you know, fear and anger are the same response wearing two different faces. I, I talked about how when I, on experiences riding out with the police, um, I saw officers walk straight up to what would seem frightening circumstances, not in a reactive way. They spoke with calm and clarity and tried to be helpful to those people. I was struck. That's not, I, you know, that's not what I see on television. And I'm sure it's not how all officers behave all the time. But I saw men and women doing difficult things with great love. Verse 20 from First uh, John 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. If we are mean, petty, bitter, spiteful, or trying to fill people with fear, shame, or guilt, then 1 John chapter 4 would say, we don't know God. 
Every human, every human deserves love. Every human needs love. Now the numbers that I quoted in the Bible of uh, 480 times love being mentioned did not include 1 Corinthians 13, which is what Joni Mitchell sang during our candle lighting, because in the King James Version, that doesn't say love, it says charity. And so all of those times, if you include those, it gets us about 500. Anyway... Though I speak of tongues and with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbals. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. How many hundreds of sermons have been preached about all of this? But how do we, in our weariness, uncertainty, and all of human weakness, move steadily closer to living that love that casts out fear? What can we do differently than we've always done or already tried to do? Well, if there's anyone we hate or might wish ill, that's a great place to start. Through prayer, meditation, or the setting of intentions, we can begin to transform those hostile responses into energy that springs from the divine presence with us and within us. We can begin with one another. In my tradition, learning to be more loving means questioning my assumptions and first impressions. Not saying we need to trust people who we find untrustworthy. Not saying that we need to sit down when we're being hurt. Or put ourselves in danger's way. There are certainly times, I guess, when that's necessary can think about the Civil Rights March, we can think about Gandhi's March, we can think about the times that people go out and represent us so that we have the freedom to sit here and ponder these things. But that image of God in which everything we, we, we say that the divine spark, the part that's in every single one of us, can't be put out. We talk about there being a part of us 
that has never been hurt, has never been broken, that all of the pain of the world cannot reach. And it's from there that love arises, the kind of love that I'm talking about. Keeping in mind that I was speaking to a group of predominantly fundamentalist ministers and congregants, I offered these questions. With this fouled up world, with all the heartbreak that it can bring to those who remain open to caring about those around us. We may find ourselves asking why bother? Can't we just sit back and let the unfolding happen? Let the apocalypse come? Wouldn't it be just as well to hasten the arrival of the end of times, the terminus of life as we know it? Well, not if we want to head the wisdom, to heed the wisdom and guidance of all the great teachers, including Jesus. I ask them as I ask you, please don't mistake what I'm saying to suggest that you let yourselves be hurt. If we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, that means that we have to extend loving kindness to ourselves too. It's not simply an emotion or feeling. It's not chemical, physical response. Love is not fun and games. It's a power greater than the faith to move mountains. If where there is love, there is no fear, then it is the most courageous of attributes. We can recognize the workings of that great and perfect love in our lives and hearts and in our spirits by the confidence and clarity it affords us. Not bravado or false pride, not arrogance or defiance, but a calm assurance that includes that peace that passes understanding. When we notice that divine spark that is God's love within you, the part of each of us made in God's image, you begin to trust and know where you need to be and what you need to be about doing. Can you even imagine what this community would look like if love was the standard and the rule for the interactions rather than the exception? I'm skipping a lot. It was a long sermon, but it was not the length of the MLK service that I went to at Galilee, which was three hours. In the words of Dr. King, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only, only 
love can do that. He said, I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Matthew seven sixteen says, By their fruits you shall know them. If those around you are stirring up stuff, generating hatred, promoting bitterness, demonstrating tempers, being petty, gossipy, destructive, then, then we, may we have the heart to transform that negative force to the beauty of the holy with our love. That asks an awful lot of us. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my heart that wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine.